Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on October 13th, 2022. We come to you today during proverbial interesting times for investors. The most recent top tier economic data, the jobs data and CPI are still running too hot for the Fed, suggesting that another 75 basis point hike is heading our way at the November 2nd FOMC meeting. Financial conditions are tightening, and as our global CIO Scott Minard wrote in his recent CIO outlook, the Fed is going to raise rates until something breaks. Rapidly rising rates have turned the U.S. dollar into an economic wrecking ball and increased the risk for global market turmoil. Measures of stock market and bond market volatility are at elevated levels. At the same time, investment opportunities are being revealed by the change in market conditions. Helping us to explain what this all means for investors is Steve Brown, Chief Investment Officer for Total Return and Macro Strategies for Guggenheim Investments. Steve, along with Scott Minard and CIO for Fixed Income, Ann Walsh, and the rest of the investment team, is responsible for $228 billion in assets as of June 30 in institutional accounts, insurance company portfolios, mutual funds, and other products. After our chat with Steve, we will answer a listener's question on the oil market addressed to our chief economist, Brian Smedley, who was the guest on episode 22 of Macro Markets. But first, we will begin with a brief call-in from Paul Dozier, a director in the Macroeconomic and Investment Research Group, who will give us a quick update on the latest macro data. Welcome, Paul. Thanks, Jay. Non-farm payrolls for September came in stronger than expected. At 263,000, the series' sixth straight release that was higher than consensus expectations, indicative of the ongoing disconnect between weak real economic activity and strong labor market conditions. That said, the release continued the overall trend of gradual softening in job creation from a post-pandemic high of 714,000 new jobs in February of this year. An average hourly earnings printed below 4% annualized, which suggests that wage gains are gradually decelerating. Unemployment actually ticked back lower to 3.5%, though this was due largely to a decline in the labor force participation rate to 62.3%. And in related developments, JOLT's data showed a big decline of over a million job openings during August. There's still a lot more job openings than there are people looking for work, but that ratio is diminishing somewhat. Another notable data release was the trade balance for August, which showed the U.S.'s trade deficit continuing to narrow significantly, driven by the shift uh, shift by consumers from goods to services and a reduction in overseas orders by U.S. retailers to manage rising inventories. Although these and other data can uh, appear to be showing signs of softening in activity, which should be of some comfort to Fed policymakers, we don't believe they'll be sufficient for the Fed to take its foot off the pedal in terms of monetary tightening, particularly when inflationary pressures continue to persist and even strengthen. On that note, September CPI data came in hotter than expected, again. While corp goods prices were largely flat on a month-over-month basis, services continue to drive nearly the entire increase. Shelter prices, including rent and owner's equivalent rent, remain resilient, 
despite expectations that month-over-month increases had peaked. Medical services also continue to climb. We believe these categories will cool in the months ahead, given incipient signs of cooling rent prices and as the Bureau of Labor Statistics does its annual switchover to new health insurance data next month. But even away from those categories, other services prices are rising at a nearly 10% annualized rate. So all told, inflation continues to be broad and too high, which the Fed will largely attribute to excess demand and a tight labor market. All that being the case, we continue to expect a 75 basis points hike at next month's Fed meeting. And that's all I've got. Back to you, Jay. Thanks, Paul Dozier. And now I want to welcome back to Macro Markets, Steve Brown, CIO for Total Return and Macro Strategies. Steve, thanks for being here. Thank you, Jay. Thank you for having me. Now, we have a lot to talk about today on what you were seeing in the market. But before we dive into the weeds, I want your 30,000-foot view of what you're seeing in the bond market right now. Jay, as, as you've led in with, and as, as Paul has mentioned, it's obviously been a very challenging macro environment this year and, and particularly challenging for the fixed income markets. But frankly, what it's done is kind of reset the opportunity uh, across the fixed income landscape, particularly for uh, less cyclical, higher quality, higher grade assets across fixed income, where you're less worried about the trajectory of the economy, you know, kind of the macro risks, and more just interested in, in trying to harvest relatively high uh, and attractive yields and spreads. And so while it's obviously been a very painful path to get us here, uh, you know, with uh, high-grade indices down more than they've ever been, but with investable yields now on relatively safe uh, high-grade assets over five, six, even sometimes seven percent, and then in more speculative-grade assets, which will be more uh, cyclically sensitive and and do inherently carry more credit risk to them, with yields in the eight, nine, ten percent range, you know, you're now talking about uh, yields that can meet pension plans, uh, return objective, you know, kind of other institutional investors that may have been sitting on the sidelines or, or taking more risk within fixed income you know, to, to generate the, the yield that they require. We think that you can generate those types of yields without taking too much credit risk or even in some cases duration risk given the relatively high uh, starting points for potential total returns going forward. Well, great. Thanks for that overview, Steve. Now, let's get started with uh, a quick look at your macro view. Uh, where do you think the Fed is in its inflation-fighting process? So the, the Fed has gone through a, a multi-step process uh, to, to get where we are today and, and has not achieved their objective. You know, First, they were trying to obviously tighten uh, policy by raising rates, uh, talking about culling the balance sheet, ultimately tightening financial conditions and and looking to slow economic activity. We can say that the Fed has achieved basically those three things so far. Uh, You've seen significant tightening in financial conditions. Uh, The balance sheet is smaller than it was at its peak. And they've raised rates, uh, you know, over 300 basis points to this point. So um, what we haven't seen yet is more of the lag effect of what the Fed is trying to achieve, which is ultimately to raise labor markets slack, uh, reduce wage growth, uh, reduce cyclical inflation, and and ultimately to reduce overall inflation. 
So, Steve, what will you be watching to gauge how successful the Fed is in its efforts? We tend to be more focused on real-time market indicators. Of course, anything relating to inflation and employment will be what market participants should be focusing on. Uh, you know, we had the CPI number today. Um, we're going to be looking for the more cyclical components of inflation to come down. When you think about the path of inflation over the last couple of years, it's really kind of been a baton passing from goods to services to shelter. Uh, and so looking at housing prices and shelter costs in particular over the coming months and quarters will be particularly important as the Fed tries to get the stubbornly high rate of inflation down. The Fed is going to be hard pressed to change policy unless they're seeing short-term results. And uh, with every month that goes by, uh, they're going to be more and more focused on uh, real-time, higher-frequency data uh, as they look to ultimately, as I said earlier, downshift uh, the rate of tightening. The market votes with its wallet, Steve. How is the market pricing in for future policy moves? At this point, the terminal Fed funds rate is uh, is priced in at about four and a half to four seventy five, which is largely in line with the uh, projections from the Fed themselves from the September meeting. And of course, you have uh, what is now a, a relatively deeply uh, inverted yield curve. If you look at twos tens, for example, it's minus forty basis points. Uh, you know, typically that's you know a positive uh, relationship over time, and and also typically you see a negative relationship before you see a rollover of economic activity or or a recession. So, uh, you know, the market is essentially believing what the Fed is saying. An inverted yield curve uh, seems to suggest that the market expects a recession. So, what's uh, our macro team telling us about the timing of a recession? We're essentially seeing higher risk of a recession uh, now, and then the further out you go, uh, the risk becomes higher. You know, we've already had two negative quarters of real GDP growth. Now that has uniquely, given the inflation backdrop, come at a time of still very high nominal growth, meaning just that the price changes are are the only component of, of, of nominal growth. So uh, Q3 is looking like it's going to be positive on a real and nominal basis. But I think importantly, we had a multi-year period coming out of the pandemic, largely as a result of fiscal stimulus, uh, where you saw um, above trend, real and very above trend nominal growth. Uh, and we now are likely in for a period of below trend, real growth. Uh, but potentially still positive nominal growth. So we're in a structurally difficult situation uh, and one where we will be on a low trend rate of growth, regardless of whether we're technically in a recession or not. So if the market believes that the Fed is essentially trying to throw the economy into a recession, uh, the, the, the obvious question for a credit investor is how this will translate into credit uh, performance. So what are some of the high-level issues that you and your team are focusing on in fundamental credit performance right now? So I think you know, one of the, one of the um, best-selling points for, for credit right now is just kind of the starting health of the credit markets. Uh, part of that is a result of uh, 
issuer's ability to issue very cheap debt for a long period of time. And we're not just talking over the last couple of years where there was record setting issuance, but really just even the kind of years post financial crisis. So issuers have been able to um, lower their cost of capital, uh, lower their uh, cost of servicing their debt, which has led to high coverage ratios uh, across the credit indices. Uh, and leverage actually relatively uh, benign, again, when you look at it at the index level. So you have high interest coverage, kind of medium level of, of leverage, which means that issuers have a greater ability than usual to absorb higher costs of interest and to absorb an eventual uh, degradation from earnings. It's quite likely we are close to or at uh, peak earnings. And um, you know, so you have to be able to weather the storm, which I think importantly means the credit selection is going to be more key than it's been in, in recent years. Give a, a view on default expectations. You think it be, will be as bad as some of the, you know, the worst of uh, you know recessionary times, or will it be more mild because of this starting point? Our expectation is on the more mild side uh, because of the starting point. Um, but you are starting to see, you know, a pickup, for example, in the number of uh, distressed uh, issuers, uh, usually defined as having a yield of 10% or more in the indices, which is creeping up into the, the high single digits after being very low for quite some time. But when you think about high yield defaults, for example, or, or defaults in the loan market, you know the, we're coming off obviously an extremely low base of near zero, around 1%. You know, we could see defaults picking up into the three, 4% range over the next year or so, and, and maybe peaking a couple percent higher than that. But if you contrast that to, you know, say the financial crisis where you got into the low teens or, or some of some other periods of more pronounced deeper recessions, uh, and importantly, where you had falling nominal and real GDP, again, you could have an environment here where you have positive nominal GDP and, and, and negative real GDP, which I think is a better environment for credit than, than the alternative when talking about recessions. You mentioned uh, earlier that there are some industries that you think will perform better than others. Yeah, I mean, some of the, it kind of depends on the the quality tilt as well, but between investment grade and high yield and, and even between high yield and low markets. But, uh, you know, the more insulated industries we think over the long run are things like uh, communications, um, uh, uh, some staples, uh, maybe financials as well. Financials look, um, you know, particularly cheap on a relative value basis. Um, you know, the uh, defensive sectors like technology, uh, particularly in investment grade, uh, are good. And then I think, you know, what you're avoiding generally is more inflation sensitive or commodity sensitive sectors, particularly where you've got, you know, an input price that's, that's driving performance, like uh, in chemicals, for example, uh, or in, in some um, uh, markets of of retail or other cyclical sectors. What you're looking to do in particular in this environment is focus on issuers who have uh, long runways, um, you know, pricing power, uh, relatively stable demand, uh, no current needs uh, to come to market to either finance a, an operating deficit uh, or a slew of upcoming maturities. And, and I think when you look across the indices, there are quite a few uh, interesting examples of place where you can invest and, and avoid those things. Now, 
how important is, or, or what we call the, the market technicals uh, in a market like this? And I'm talking, of course, about supply and demand for, uh, for credit. And what are you seeing right there? Well, it's been an interesting year. Supply is significantly off, particularly in uh, high yield market, for example, even the investment grade corporate credit market has seen a significant downtick in issuance. Structured credit uh, as well, less so than those those first two markets I mentioned. So, you know, with kind of lower incremental demand, you have seen lower supply. And then, of course, in the mortgage market, uh, you, you've seen a significant downtick in, in supply just as the Fed is, is exiting the market. So technicals from a supply-demand side are, are positive. Um, but things like um, flows have generally been negative uh, out, of, uh, out of bond funds. They're slightly positive in, in some portions of bond uh, bond indices like in investment grade. But you know, you do see stable demand from long duration buyers in the US as, as well as Asia predominantly. But with all of the fluctuations in the FX markets and uh, the, the shifts in, in interest rates and changes in hedging costs, you know, it's it's hard to get too comfortable with the longer term uh, demand technicals. Uh, in, in this environment. So there are a number of nuances when we think about supply and demand, but you know, in general, you haven't seen a lot of forced selling and you are seeing natural buyers uh, emerge in the face of relatively light supply, which are positive long run uh, technicals in the face of what's been a negative near term uh, technical, mostly from flows. So, Steve, we've been talking mostly about uh, corporate credit generally, but let's do a lightning round on what you're seeing in structured credit. I'll just mention a couple of sectors and you know, you can give me your response. So let's just start with ABS, asset-backed securities. Yeah, I think, I mean, overall, structured credit has held in uh, well on the year. You know, these are shorter duration, uh, shorter maturity asset classes in general. Some are, are floating rate that, that don't have the interest rate sensitivity that other asset classes do. So uh, pricing has held in relatively well, um, but like other sectors, you now see significant discounts uh, to par, which you typically don't see. When you're investing in structured credit, you're generally taking a, an information premium, as we call it, or a, a liquidity premium, and you're, and you're generally selling a call uh, because the, the most, uh, most of the assets are, are callable in a relatively short window. So uh, now that that call that you sold away is um, you know, essentially not worth anything, uh, you know, you've got significant dollar price discounts uh, where your upside in these loss remote asset classes is par. Your timing of par um, you know, will, will depend, um, but you're seeing very attractive yields uh, and even in relatively short duration asset classes. Okay. Collateralized loan obligations or CLOs. So that's a market that's been surprisingly strong from an issuance standpoint. Uh, it's having one of its highest years of issuance ever. Now, part of that makes sense because you know floating rate assets have been uh, in vain. You know you have stable demand from U.S. banks, from um, from Asian financial institutions. So uh, you you haven't seen a big trail off in issuance. Um, but there you're seeing actually some of the widest spreads on a relative basis uh, post-financial crisis. And that's a, that's a market where you can now invest in single A, double A, triple A debt tranches at 
meaningful discounts to par, you know, five, 10 points, maybe even more. So that's a, that's a part of the market that we like as a defensive allocation because it should be uh, relatively lost remote kind of regardless of the credit environment that you're in. Uh, and again, you, you get to capture that upside from a pull to par. All right, uh, residential MBS, mortgage-backed securities. So that's an area we've been particularly focused on in the last couple of months, um, kind of opportunistically working with some issuers that we've that we're comfortable with, uh, basically securitizing uh, pools of uh, reperforming loans or uh, non-qualified mortgages. Some of these smaller niche categories within um, residential MBS market, uh, even on the agency side, uh, with agency mortgage spreads as wide as they are on both a nominal and an option adjusted basis, we've been adding allocations because while we think that, you know, one of the primary goals of the Fed is to slow down housing and slow down the appreciation of housing, uh, you know, while they're likely to be successful, you're coming off a significant period of, of appreciation, which is kind of delevered inherently any kind of investment in the U.S. residential market, which leaves a, a larger cushion on an LTV basis. And, and so we are still thinking that asset class is generally attractive. Great. And LTV is loan to value for those who are wondering. Uh, all right. Last uh, structured credit uh, sector, commercial mortgage-backed securities. So this tends to be a sector that we're, we're kind of structurally underweight. It's also seen a big shift in, in issuance, issuance trends post-crisis with now a kind of more even distribution amongst the, the conduit um, uh, issuers, um, single asset, single borrower, and then a larger proportion of uh, agency, um, predominantly multifamily uh, securitization. So, you know, commercial is one that we're um, largely avoiding, but um, sharpening our pencils to the extent you get a significant repricing in, in risk. You know, I think some of the more obvious um, parts of the market that tend to get a lot of focus are you know, office in particular, uh, and the shifting demands going for office space. But it, it's a sector that, uh, despite its predicted demise, many, many times has, um, you know, that hasn't happened yet. So uh, we're not too exposed at the moment, and uh, more looking at uh, potential opportunities in the future. So uh, where the rubber meets the road, of course, is what you're getting paid for taking uh, any kind of risk. Um, so do you feel that investors today are getting compensated for the risks that they're taking in this um, wild environment? I think that the, the important takeaway is just that, that high-grade credit in particular, uh, the all-in yields you can get are at levels you haven't seen since 2009. And whether you're someone who's looking at fixed income from a multi-asset allocation perspective or, or you're kind of confined to the different sectors within fixed income, it's hard to argue against its relative attractiveness given where it's come from and, and where it is now. So I think, again, the asset classes where you're less concerned about the macro environment on a hold of maturity basis, of course, everyone's concerned uh, you know, in, in the intermediate basis, because it can influence, uh, you know, prices and mark to market, you just have a big cushion, um, given the relatively high all in yields, five, six, 7%, uh, where, um, you know, you haven't been paid that much to invest in those types of assets, uh, since 2009. So 
even vanilla investment grade corporate credit, particularly the 10 year part of the curve, which continues to be dislocated, but there are some front end opportunities as well. Um, uh, structured credit, the asset classes that I mentioned, uh, ABS, uh, CLOs, uh, non-agency mortgages, uh, and then just being more select in below investment grade credit because it's, you know, we are not in a zero default environment anymore. Um, but the yields that you can invest in in double B high yield, which is generally a, a, a pretty safe cohort, is in the sevens or eights. And then you can get select single B exposure closer to eight, nine or 10%, you know, largely avoiding triple C and those that are most highly levered at the moment and, and most sensitive to what could happen uh, going forward from an economic standpoint or from an inflation standpoint, we're largely avoiding. But there are a plethora of opportunities um, and it's really about kind of determining how to weight each of them and then roll up the overall uh, risk that you're taking. Because I think to make the point even clearer, there's a lot of relative value in credit, uh, particularly in the U.S., given all that's priced into the market. Is it a fair statement, Steve, that any new buys that you're adding to a portfolio are going to raise the overall yield of the existing portfolio? Generally, yes. Most things at this point are accretive to total yield and potential total return. So we haven't discussed duration very much, Steve, or defensive positioning. So how are you thinking about that right now? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we were uh, in the places where we have relative targets, we were underweight. Um, you know, the beginning called five months of the year post the June meeting uh, with the Fed and the retracement of yields back in the mid threes, we got more equal to slightly overweight. You know, we don't think duration on a relative basis is really going to drive uh, returns. We're really trying to drive returns from credit allocation and, and sector allocation and security selection. Duration has driven absolute returns and uh, probably will for a little bit longer. Um, but if we expect the Fed you know, to be close to the terminal rate, duration could, again, be a tailwind for returns. Uh, duration has been uh, everyone's enemy this year, um, but uh, should matter less going forward and eventually might yet again be a, a, a tailwind to, to return. And how about um, hedging strategies or liquidity buffers? Anything you want to add to there? Yeah, we've put some overlays in of relatively larger size, um, you know, particularly in, in uh, the equity markets, just in trying to think about how we manage our overall credit beta. And so we view those as short-term hedges um, that will insulate, help insulate the portfolio from what could be continued near-term weakness and risk assets. Um, and then when we think about our longer-term targets toward, um, you know, kind of risk budgeting, you know, we'd say we're at 70% or so of our max risk budget, meaning we have a decent amount of the portfolios that we can reinvest, continue to reinvest and take our uh, beta targets up, you know, if the conditions warrant and particularly if credit continues to cheapen up as it has for the majority of the year. You don't have to meaningfully add to your risk with and not and do so without uh, while sacrificing kind of downside risk on a hold and maturity basis. That makes sense. You know, you're uh, you're mentioning of the 70% uh, of your you know risk target. 
brings to mind the, the advantages of active management uh, in the fixed income space. Um, so I imagine that 70% has been higher, but it's also been lower. That's right. That's right. It's been lower uh, before. We like to modulate based on the relative attractiveness of credit and the underlying credit sectors. And so credit looks relatively cheap right now. We think we're at a point where even in a mean reversion scenario or a scenario where you stop you know, meaningfully selling off is a scenario where you can generate significant returns from just your overall yield. And again, some shifting in those variables over the long run could provide tailwinds to total return rather than the onslaught of headwinds that they've been you know, really the entire year this year. Steve, this has been fantastic. What a great conversation. It's great to peek inside your mind for a little bit. Um, before we leave, though, what are some of the final takeaways you would want to leave uh, for our listeners? Well, I mean, I know a number of our listeners are, are long-run long, term, uh, long run clients and, and partners of ours. And so we just want to thank everyone for the continued opportunity to, uh, you know, invest your, your capital and, and be your stewards and, um, you know, to focus on the medium and, and longer run expectations that we're positioning these portfolios and, and products towards, uh, which again, we think is uh, likely to be a, a generationally attractive opportunity for high grade credit, particularly in the US, but overall just a much more attractive environment. One with plenty of risks, but uh, a lot of risk priced into the market, uh, which makes it of course an interesting time. Well, thanks again for your time, Steve. Uh, really appreciate it. I hope you'll come back and visit with us again soon. Now, before we go, we want to dip into our macro markets mailbag. Uh, Jason from Phoenix has emailed a question for Brian Smedley, our chief economist and guest on episode 22 of our podcast. Jason writes, Brian, do you think the decision by OPEC to cut production will have a meaningful impact on the Fed's ability to bring down inflation? Good question. Now here is Brian's answer. Yes, the risk of higher oil prices definitely complicates things for the Fed. Before the OPEC decision, Fed officials had cited another oil price shock as a key upside risk to inflation. And the OPEC announcement comes as the Biden administration is set to wind down the sale of barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in coming weeks. So this will skew risks to oil prices to the upside, thereby making it harder for the Fed to battle against top line inflation. Well, thanks, Brian, for your answer. And thanks to our listener, Jason, for sending us his question. If any of you have a question for Steve Brown uh, or any of our other podcast guests, please send them to macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com and we will do our best to answer them, either on the air, on a future episode, or offline. My thanks once again to Steve Brown and to Paul Dozier, and thanks to all of you who have joined us for our podcast. If you like what you are hearing, please rate us five stars. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership, visit guggenheiminvestments.com slash perspectives. So long. Important notices and disclosures.
one basis point is equal to 0.01%. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Stock markets can be volatile. Investments in securities of small and medium capitalization companies may involve greater risk of loss and more abrupt fluctuations in market price than investments in larger companies. The market value of fixed income securities will change in response to interest rate changes and market conditions, among other things. Investments in fixed income instruments are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing their value to decline. High yield securities present more liquidity and credit risk than investment grade bonds and may be subject to greater volatility. Investors in asset-backed securities or ABS, including mortgage-backed securities or MBS and collateralized loan obligations or CLOs, generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some asset-backed securities may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict making their prices volatile, and are subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risk to investing in loans directly, such as credit, interest rate, counterparty, prepayment, liquidity and valuation risks. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product, or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions, and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial, tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the investment management businesses of Guggenheim Partners, LLC. Securities are distributed by Guggenheim Funds Distributors, LLC.